Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Last week's show was based on the story of Plato's near-death experience, a report from nearly 2,400 years ago. I called it an Old Testament NDE, not because it was in the Bible, but because it came from a time when Old Testament attitudes on justice ruled cultures throughout the world. Here are two listener responses I received this past week. One listener wrote, What I wonder is why so many NDEs say there's only love and no judgment, just unconditional love, and then there's these that speak about judgment and punishment and hell. So after listening to over 200 accounts, I still have no idea. And then a second listener wrote, Surely the perpetrators of horrible abuse upon children must be punished. They should be punished. Are they punished? It's so horrible. I I find it odd that it would be just forgiven and those souls just carry on. When does justice come in the afterlife? Well, spoiler alert, that's what this current series of programs is attempting to explore. By recalling a few samples of our changing theology from the OT world and the NT world, how have our listeners' questions about God's justice been answered in the past and Are those answers reinterpreted by the near-death experiences we hear about today? On this show, we will take a look at two books of the dead uh, that reveal how Egyptians and Tibetans answered the question, what happens to us when we die. We start with what's loosely termed the Egyptian book of the dead. It began as instructions on the walls of pyramid tombs to guide the Pharaoh as he went into the afterlife. As time went on, Egyptian instructions were refined and were written on coffin lids and burial shrouds for many other deceased as well. The book was titled Coming Forth into the Light or the Light of Day and was a loose collection of texts containing a number of magic spells intended to assist a dead person's journey through the dua or underworld and into the afterlife. The book was authorized by many priests. written by many priests over a period of about a thousand years and was represented in hieroglyphs as a five-pointed star within a circle. The story of the underworld came to be centered on the god Osiris, who during his life was king of Egypt. Legend tells how he was murdered by his brother Set and was restored to life by his wife Isis, who then conceived their son Horus. Therefore, Osiris, god among gods of the underworld, came to personify rebirth and life after death. According to Wikipedia, the Egyptian underworld featured rivers, islands, fields, lakes, mounds, and caverns, and also fantastic lakes of fire, walls of iron, and trees of turquoise. By the way, the lake of fire is a concept shared by both the ancient Egyptian and early Christian religions. In ancient Egypt, it appears as an obstacle on the journey through the underworld and can destroy or refresh the deceased. In Christianity, it is a 
place of after-death punishment for the wicked. The lake is used in five verses of the book of Revelation. The image of the lake of fire was taken up by the early Christian Hippolytus of Rome in about the year 230 and continues to be used by modern Christians today. The texts and images of the Egyptian Book of the Dead were magical as well as religious. Magic was uh, as legitimate an activity as praying to the gods, even when the magic was aimed at controlling the gods themselves. If the obstacles of the underworld could be negotiated, the deceased would be judged in the weighing of the heart ritual. The god Anubis, portrayed as a man with a dog's head, led the deceased into the presence of Osiris, and there the dead person swore that he had not committed any sin from the list of 42 sins, reciting a text known as the Negative Confession. Uh, the negative confessions one would make after death could be individualized. Um, that is, they would, might vary from person to person. Uh, here are a sample. I won't read all 42 of them. It begins, I have not committed sin. <laughs> Pretty broad. I have not committed robbery with violence. I have not stolen. I have not slain men or women. I have not destroyed the grain, I have not reduced measures, I have not stolen the God's property, I have not told lies, I have not stolen food, I was not sullen. I have not committed adultery, I have not lain with men, I have not caused anyone to weep, I have not disassembled, or dissembled rather, I have not transgressed. I have not done grain profiteering, I have not robbed a parcel of land, I have not discussed secrets, I have brought no lawsuits. I have not disputed at all about property. I have not had intercourse with a married woman. I have not had intercourse with a married woman. It repeats the affirmation, but that, this one was addressed to a different God. Uh, I have not struck terror. I have not transgressed the law. I have not been hot-tempered. I have not been neglectful of truthful words. I have not cursed. I have not been violent. I have not confounded truth. And anyway, you've got the idea. It goes on and on and on. To this, the person swears, and then the dead person's heart got weighed on a pair of scales against the goddess Mott, who embodied truth and justice. Mott was often represented by an ostrich feather, the hieroglyphic sign for her name. At this point, there was a risk that the deceased's heart would bear witness and own up to the sins committed in life. But Magic Spell 30B guarded against this eventuality. If the scales balanced, this meant the deceased had led a good life. Anubis, Anubis would take them to Osiris, and they would find their place in the afterlife, becoming vindicated or true of voice. If the heart was out of balance with Mop, then another fearsome beast called Amit, the Devourer, was involved. Amit is an ancient Egyptian goddess with the forequarters of a lion, the hindquarters of a hippopotamus, and the head of a crocodile, the three largest man-eating animals known to ancient Egyptians. She stood ready to eat the heart and thereby put the dead person's afterlife to an end. Still, there were numerous ways for Egyptians to negotiate their fate. Many of the actions Egyptian people took after death were to influence the gods to allow them another life. If they were given a favorable judgment, the souls were returned to the mother goddess' womb. 
During this stage, the soul meets its restored body. In the Book of the Dead, there are lines that read, quote, I unite your limbs. I hold your discharges together. I surround your flesh. I drive away the fluids of your decay. I wipe your tears. I heal all your limbs, each being united with the other. I surround you with the work of the weaving goddess. I complete you and form you as Ray, the sun god. Ultimately, the immortality desired by ancient Egyptians was reflected in endless lives. By doing worthy deeds in their current life, they would be granted a second life for all of eternity. So there's a brief summary of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, before moving on to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, let's compare last week's show on Plato's near-death experience on, of Ur, written in about 400 BCE, to Egypt's book, with roots going back as far as 2500 BCE. As we just heard, Egyptians were required to swear they'd never committed the most common of sins. It seems many would try to persuade or fool the gods into allowing them to reincarnate by charming them through magic and prayer. Otherwise, the person would be destroyed. In Plato's near-death experience, on the other hand, comparatively few were judged so evil or so good that they went to permanent hell or heaven. The vast majority had to reincarnate under circumstances determined by their pre-birth choices and their fate. Plato prescribes that no matter what their circumstances, if they chose to live a life of moderation and goodness, that their reincarnation could lead them to a happy life. Now, let's take a look at the Tibetan Buddhist Book of the Dead, which I would term New Testament, NT. It was brought to Tibet by an Indian mystic in the 8th century, but then uh, hidden when the mystic deemed it too advanced for their understanding. It is much more profoundly psychological in its understanding of what happens when we die. The Tibetan Book of the Dead was, is written as to guide us through a 49-day journey from death to re-entering the womb to be born again. Reading the book tells the dead what to expect in this after-death state and gives direction for different situations. Tibetan Buddhists generally believe the purpose of existence is to escape life on this plane. When this painful life ends with death, it is followed by rebirth filled with more change and inevitable suffering. They maintain we are trapped within this circle of birth and rebirth. The purpose of the Book of the Dead, then, is to help the individual escape this cycle. It teaches that most won't escape the cycle of death and rebirth at death. Only saints attain liberation then. But this book of the dead teaches how to attain rebirth on a higher plane, and thus in each life to get closer to liberation. The book's name means liberation by hearing on the after-death plane. It is an instruction manual for what to whisper into the ear of someone who has just died while they are in the bardo. These are verbal instructions on how to be reborn into a higher plane. The book's guidance includes the following information. With physical death, one comes face to face with the clear light. The instruction? The time has come for you to seek the path. Your breathing is about to cease. You are set face to face before the clear light. 
Now you will experience its reality in the bardo, where all things are like the cloudless sky, and the intellect is like a transparent void without circumference or center. At this moment, know yourself and abide in that state. At the moment of death, one experiences the ultimate ego death. All of our conscious selves, which are in reality manifestations of the subconscious self, cease to be. And one is alone with the subconscious self, the clear light. Most people have not prepared themselves for this moment of death. They lose consciousness at this point and thereby fail to recognize the clear light. Those who have prepared recognize the clear light as themselves. They become the clear light and are liberated from the cycle of birth and rebirth. Those who fail to recognize the primary clear light must face at least one more lifetime. From the moment one fails to recognize the light, the subconscious begins to manifest itself again in duality and ego. And once the subconscious begins manifesting itself again, one is separated from the subconscious and becomes the manifestations. Unity is lost. Rebirth is imminent. From this point on, one's purpose is to attain rebirth in the state that will be most conducive to one's liberation for the next time around. Well, let's review those stages. Person dying experiences the first clear light in its primitive purity, unobscured. If they're prepared, they recognize the void as themselves. Failing that, if one can't hold fast to that experience, they are next their next experience is the secondary clear light, a lower state dimmed by karma. When set face to face with the secondary clear light, one's purpose again is to recognize the oneness of themselves with everything. With that recognition, recognition of the secondary clear light, recognition in the sense of becoming it, becoming the secondary clear light, one is immediately reborn again as a divine incarnation and is likely assured liberation in the next life. Failing to recognize the secondary clear light, one slips further away from their subconscious and is wrapped up more in the manifestations we might call today uh, the matrix of the ego. In this stage, one is presented with karmic illusions. On the first to seventh day, one is presented with what the book calls the peaceful deities, visions of our own ego's desires that can rule us like gods. From the eighth to the fourteenth day, one is presented with the wrathful deities, visions of monsters, manifestations of our own ego's fears and terrors. The psychologist Carl Jung says in his commentary on the Bardo, the gods are archetypal thought forms. Their peaceful and wrathful aspects, which play a great role in the mediations of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, symbolize the opposites. But in another role, they are the positive and negative principles united in one and the same figure. The first clear light is the state of absolute nothingness, the subconscious unobscured. The second clear light is the state of oneness, the point. The self has now entered in to assume identity with the subconscious, but it has, in a sense, limited the actual subconscious by identifying with it. And then after that comes the many, the dualities. 
The self is now separated more fully from the subconscious. So again, the first clear light, Bardo, is all void, very reality, the all good. The second clear light is all one. All the deities are as the reflections of consciousness. They are united as reflections from the same source. All further cementing the unity, the text reveals, the wrathful deities are only the formal peaceful deities in changed aspect. So, once again, in the second clear light, Bardo, as in the first clear light, Bardo, one is merely to recognize the state of oneself as oneself. In the first clear light, one is to recognize the subconscious as the self. In the second clear light, Bardo, one must recognize the illusions that one experiences as projections of the subconscious. And recognizing this in the fullest sense means rebirth as a divine incarnation. The same as would happen if one had recognized the secondary clear light as the oneness of which we are a part. During this stage, one is presented with some beautiful illusions and with some terrifying illusions. The suggestion throughout with both types of illusion is to neither desire them nor fear them as they come from one's own self. Further within this bardo, it's said that one will be presented with two lights, <clears throat> a light so radiant that one will scarcely be able to look at it, and secondly, a dull light. The admonition at this point is to put your faith in the radiant light and not be attracted to the dull light. The radiant light emerging from the void is frightening because it is so bright, while the dull light shines from the constant motion of the duality. Many times the dull light seems more attractive in that it is easier to see and to follow. It's worth noting that the peaceful deities are said to issue from the heart while the wrathful or knowledge-holding deities issue from the brain. If one can recognize any of the illusions as self, one may attain a secondary liberation and be reborn as a divine incarnation. If one doesn't recognize the illusions, it may be because of bad karmic history, habits of addictions built up in a previous life. These bad karmic connections cloud the brain, and cause it to fail to recognize itself. An individual's past actions determine to a certain degree what will happen to them in the present. If during a life the individual had acquired a strong sense of selfhood, then during the Bardo experiences they will have a harder time recognizing the illusions as themselves as they try to maintain identity with the self they'd created during life. If, however, the individual had developed good karma during this life by recognizing all their selves as manifestations of the subconscious, then it would be easier for them to recognize the illusions as issuing from themselves. So, big hint here. Get to work on it now, and you'll be ready for the bardo when it comes. While one's previous selves have died, on some level their habit patterns still affect how they react to stimuli. One's behavior in the present is determined primarily by how one behaved in the past. To escape karmic connections, the book suggests we meditate on the emptiness of the intellect, the void, and if this proves too difficult, we should meditate on Buddha or Mohammed or Jesus or 
whoever one's particular role model is. The idea is to identify with someone of superior behavior, one who is closer to the subconscious. Identifying with someone of superior karma can help us escape our own connections. The final bardo is the bardo of rebirth. Here, one is instructed to achieve rebirth on the highest plane possible to, for them, and six levels of rebirth are mentioned. First one are saints. The second are heroes. Third come humans with physical or psychological handicaps of various sorts. Fourth are animals tied helplessly to their needs and wants. Fifth are neurotics, having many needs and wants, but unable to understand or satisfy them. And the sixth group are psychotics, living with such strong anxieties and fears that it causes them a split with reality. Our purpose in the Bardo of Rebirth is to gain rebirth at the highest possible level of those mentioned. The main suggestion is to neither desire nor fear anything. Desire or fear nothing. Desire nothing, fear nothing. For example, when one is presented with various visions of future rebirth, we must not desire human rebirth before our time, or we will be reborn in a lower plane. If we see a vision of a beautiful place and desire it, we will also be reborn in a lower plane. If we have anger or fear during this period, we also descend into a lower plane. During this period, we are instructed to reach a state without thought, or at least to focus on oneness. This helps keep us from having emotions or desires, and it helps enable our rebirth on a higher plane. We mustn't desire birth before our time, or become frustrated because we're not as perfect or as good as we wish to be. If we do, we will be reborn in one of the lower planes as one of our lower selves, prone to all the fears and anxieties that beset humanity. If we can remain in a state free of desire and fear, the state where no thoughts are formed, we will be reborn into higher and higher states. Well, from this superficial review of the contents of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, we are shown how different an understanding it, it does offer from um, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And you can see why the psychologist Carl Jung, who, by the way, had an NDE of his own, loved the early Evans Wentz translation of the Tibetan Book, because although it was a text colored by um, Evan Wentz's own interpretation, interpretation. Still, it reflected the psychological projections of the dying being, that everything experienced in the bardo is a projection of the dying person's own state of consciousness and ego, um, of uh, their degree of understanding, a measure of their empathy and oneness with the ultimate reality. So far, we have reflected on just one of the two questions we opened with. That was the question from the listener who, who wrote, surely the perpetrators of horrible abuse must be punished. They should be punished. Are they punished? It's so horrible. I find it odd that it would be just forgiven and those souls just carry on. When does justice come to the afterlife? Well, in the afterlife explanations from Plato, 
and from Egypt, justice comes with a vengeance, Plato's NDE reported that reward and punishment for the life just ended occurs right away. And when it's over, we are reincarnated to do it all over again under the different circumstances chosen by us and by our fate. A mix of the two. The Egyptian Book of the Dead describes an afterlife that almost assuredly will end in the soul's destruction, given the uh, the common nature of all the sins I listed and, and the more I didn't list. Unless, of course, the soul is wily enough through magic and prayer to persuade the gods to allow reincarnation. The focus here seems to be entirely on the desperate survival of the individual ego. Uh, Then again, as the heart matures through the process of death, it may choose to reveal the truth of its shortcomings in life. In other words, to tell the truth. And if that's the case, and Amit, the devourer God, eats our heart, are we being punished? Or are we simply being digested into the undifferentiated void the Buddhists want us to identify, identify with anyway? Well, it's hard to say. Plato's NDE answer on how to live our life, to master through wisdom the good and middle way, is only different by intensity of insight from Buddha's meditation on the void and the one. Both suggest freeing oneself from desire and fear. So it seems to me they are on similar paths. No doubt Buddha would have agreed with Plato's quote from Socrates, who said, quote, if you don't get what you want, you suffer. If you get what you don't want, you suffer. Even when you get exactly what you want, you still suffer because you can't hold on to it forever. Your mind is your predicament. It wants to be free of change, free of pain, free of the obligations of life and death. But change is law, and no amount of pretending will alter that reality. End quote. To that, it's possible to add, extricate your being from desire and fear, and you should be able to avoid ego's invitation to punishment. The Tibetan Book of the Dead says our travel through the bardo reflects the story of our own clarity of vision versus our ego, desire, and fears. Where we wind up in the next life is based on our psychological karma. But if in the bardo we hold to what we should focus on, the void or the one, or failing that to control our desires and fears in our own self-generated visions of the matrix, then our outlook for the next lifetime will be improved. Justice in the Tibetan bardo is self-inflicted through our susceptibility to our own karma. Still, it's possible that enlightenment can raise us away from the punishment others might think we deserve. In that regard, I'll dub the psychology of the Tibetan Book of the Dead a more New Testament approach in our evolution of understanding of what happens to us when we die. But for heaven's sake, what about that other question we opened with? Isn't there more to life and eternal life than this? On next week's show, we will look at a distressing near-death experience, a DNDE, in light of the bardo, and also offer the story of how a powerful NDE lifted a child from the horrors of evil on earth to the joys of heavenly love. That to demonstrate how individual NDEs can offer their own chapters 
toward a different Book of the Dead, an NDE Book of the Dead, if you will. I hope you'll join us then. My thanks to Don Lehman Jr. for his insightful discussion of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I drew upon for today's show. If you'd like to hear this show again, or any of our more than 500 archived, ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.